0: That great theologian, Dr. Seuss, in his book, Horton Hatches the Egg, has the primary character, Horton, saying this, I meant what I said, and I said what I meant, an elephant's faithful 100%. Well, Horton's words remind me of what the Bible says in Proverbs 20, verse 6. The Scripture says, many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but... A faithful man who can find. There has always been a short supply of faithful people. Really, the only truly, fully faithful person in the universe is God Himself. If you will find your place with me for a moment in the book of Lamentations, from which we just read, the third chapter... I'm going to do a little explanation and application of this passage of Scripture, beginning with verse 21 of chapter 3. A moment of instruction regarding the background of this statement. If you and I had only read through verse 20 of the book of Lamentations, we would be sad This was written by the one who is described as the weeping prophet, Jeremiah, the great man of God. And what he saw brought him to his knees in sorrow. He was despondent. He was grievous. He was a man who was deeply depressed. When he surveyed what once was the great city of David, Jerusalem, he saw nothing but a wasteland. He saw its inhabitants starving to death. He heard little children crying out in the streets for food. And he even knew that there were mothers whose children had died of starvation who had cooked their own children and cannibalized their own children. The temple, the residing place of God, had been destroyed. It was thought among the Jews that the temple would never be destroyed because it was the temple which was chosen by God to be the place where His presence and power rested most significantly. In 701 B.C., Sennacherib, who was the great emperor of the great Assyrian Empire, had come with his forces against Jerusalem. And somehow, Jerusalem had been able to escape without the destruction of the temple to God and the city itself, including the walls. But In 587 B.C., the emperor Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had sent his forces and they had demolished the city, creating the scene that I briefly and inadequately described in the city itself. That's the background. But let's see what happens in the mind and heart of this man in verse 21 of chapter 3. He says, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. What did he call to mind? Look what he called to mind, which instilled hope in a heart that was despairing. He goes on to write, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. The word great love is really not adequate to capture the significance of the word itself. It's the great Hebrew word, for the covenant love of God for his people. Jeremiah need, needed to recollect that great covenant love, to reflect upon the covenant love of God because of what his eyes saw and the despair of the people and the degradation, actually, the people, not just in their physical being, not just in their psychological being. But more importantly, in their spiritual lives. For centuries, God had sent prophets declaring the Word of the Lord. And they had repeatedly, complacently refused to hear the Word of God through the prophets. But he remembered what God had promised. Not only did he remember the great love that God had promised... His covenant love, which he was not going to abandon, even though it may have seemed at the time that God had abandoned his people. He goes on to say here in verse 22, the second part, for his compassions never failed. The very reflection upon the fact that God's compassions would never fail. The word which is translated compassions in Hebrew was the word which was used to describe a mother's womb in which the child she was carrying lived. It speaks of the tenderness of a mother's love. Sorry, guys, but the tenderness of a mother's love and the sacrifice of a mother in love for her child is bigger than ours because of what the mother is willing to do in terms of dealing with the changes which occur in her body when she becomes pregnant. With a child. And then after the baby is born, all the things associated with mothering that child. This is in no way to minimize the importance of a father in a child's life. The word parent does not occur in the singular in our Bible, it's always in the plural. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? Because in God's mind, He knew the importance of both a mother and a father. But the compassion of a mother is incredible. And so as Jeremiah reflected on the loving kindness of God, the hesed is the word in Hebrew, and on this compassion, he was brought to a place of having hope. There's instruction for us. When we are despairing, certainly none of us has had the kind of scenario that is painted in the Scripture, the book of Lamentation particularly, about the problems of God's people. None of us has... Face quite that kind of trouble, but we all have trouble from time to time. And when we get in the dumps, the doldrums, when we despair and are depressed, what we need to do is to remember the love of God for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, and how that continues to be our situation. And then, verse 23, they, referring to the loving kindnesses of God and His compassions, are new every morning. You know when we woke up this morning? They're just as bright and fresh today in our lives as they were the first time we ever received His loving kindness and His compassion. Every morning portends a good day for us who know the Lord. To bask in the glory of God. To bask in the compassion of God. His love for us. And great is your faithfulness. That's awesome, isn't it? Great is your faithfulness. Perhaps you recall when a young ruler came to Jesus and he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And do you remember Jesus' response to that question? He says, Why do you call me good? There is none good but God. Some people have latched on to that response of Jesus to say, there, Jesus was not God, or at least He had no consciousness of God. To the contrary, Jesus was really testing the man. He knew who He was. We read the book of John, we see clearly Jesus was quite aware of the fact that He is the I Am. No doubt about it. But He was wanting to make this man pause and consider that only God is good. God is the only one who deserves such a designation. We throw the word good around and never think about it. In that sense, we throw the word great around a lot, don't we? Great. Which reminds me of something which happened during the end and the funeral of the life of Louis XIV, the great French king. When the time came for the memorial service, which was held at Notre Dame, cathedral in Paris, the room was filled to overflowing, not just with people of stature in France, but all the heads of state of all the nations in Europe and other environs. They had come together to honor this great king who had died. And then when the man who had been given this enviable Responsibility. Some would call it an unenviable situation to declare the funeral oration. His name was Jean Massillon, and this is what he said as he read from the Book of Ecclesiastes, one sixteen, the words of Solomon himself, the great king of Israel. I spoke in my heart, saying, "Behold, I have become great, and have advanced in wisdom beyond all." who were before me in Jerusalem. Massillon paused for effect. Some in the congregation thought the man can't remember what he was supposed to say. But then these words came from his mouth. God only is great, my brothers, and above all in those last moments when he presides at the death of the kings of the earth, The more their glory and their power have shown forth, the more in vanishing. Then do they render homage to His supreme greatness? God then appears all that He is, and man is no more at all that which he has believed himself to be. Only God is great, said this French preacher at that particular moment. And that is true. And so we can say with Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. The greatness of God's faithfulness is based in His nature. The Bible says that God cannot lie in the book of Titus, chapter 1, verse 2. The Bible says in Numbers 23:19, God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should repent: has he said and will he not do it? has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? What God says, he does. The promises of God have been given to us as the children of God to embrace, and we embrace them with great gladness, why? because of the great faithfulness of God. God has never failed to fulfill any promise He has made. Yes, there have been quarters of century which has passed. I have been here for 25 years as the pastor. Think about how long that is. Some of you have been here longer than I. Think about all those years. In the case of Abraham and his wife Sarah, 25 years passed. They were years which were... Full of expectation initially for sure, but also full of disappointment as year followed year, followed year, followed year year without any fulfillment. But in faith, Abraham did not waver in his belief and God fulfilled the promise that He had made to him and to Sarah. The Bible says... In the book of Psalm 145, verse 13, the Lord is faithful to His promise. Has God given you a promise about something that has yet to become real in time? You know He's given you that promise. You have claimed that promise. You have held tenaciously to that promise. Don't give up on the Lord because He is faithful. The trait of our God, which is that of faithfulness, is linked inseparably to what some theologians call the most important attribute of God. The most important aspect of His nature. It's one we don't hear much about. But I tend to agree with those who say that the immutability of God is His most important feature. And you say, okay, Mike, can you interpret what that means? The immutability. What it means is described in a statement that God makes. It's recorded in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 6, where the Lord says, I, the Lord, do not change. Think about that for a moment. God never changes, He's not like we are. We have changed over the course of time. We will change in some way, probably, in the next week. We're constantly in a state of flux, physically, psychologically. The good news for us who know Jesus is, though the outer person is wasting away, the inner person can be renewed every day. That's good news for us. But what we know is, our Lord does not change. And this is the basis of His being one who is great in His faithfulness. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. This is Why we can count on His faithfulness. Now we're going to look at a couple of primary ideas in Scripture regarding the faithfulness of God. Here's the first. The greatness of God's faithfulness is seen in the way He relates to His children. I'm going to look at four passages of Scripture with you which have embedded in them the statement, God is faithful. The first three do, and the third also refers to His faithfulness. We're going to look, first of all, at the fact that God pardons us. In 1 John 1.9, you know this, many of you can quote it. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you ever paused to truly meditate on that passage? We have access to God's forgiveness whenever we sin, because we have one who is our high priest. When we do sin, John writes a little later in his epistle, I write these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. The word advocate was a word which was used in biblical times to describe a defense attorney. We have a defense attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, He is the propitiation, meaning He is the one who has appeased God's wrath for our sin when He died on the cross. We have an Advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, and He has propitiated our sins before God as well as the sins of the world. God is faithful to pardon us. In Psalm 103, the Bible says He pardons all our iniquities. I hope you notice this emphasis on the comprehensiveness of our pardon before God. Going back to 1 John 1.9, how much of our unrighteousness does He cleanse us of? How much? All. He pardons how many of our iniquities? All our iniquities. The Bible says in Romans 18, there is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been pardoned by the work of Jesus Christ, by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is a difference in the legal system of America between a pardon and a parole or probation. Parole or probation doesn't give a person a clean slate in the law books. What it does, it substitutes some sort of probation or community service, something or a combination of things, so the person does not have to do prison time. But a pardon expunges everything. It exonerates the person as if the person had never committed the crime, no matter how much crime or how heinous the crime has been. That is the power that is given to the President of the United States to do such a thing. Paul Manafort, many of you know the name. He was the campaign manager for President Trump for some time. He is now serving a part of a a seven-and-a-half-year sentence for crimes that were against the federal government. I've just read this last week how there's an effort on the part of the state of New York to get him extradited to Rikers Island. i would never heard of Rikers Island. But just the headlines and the little things that were said made me want to know more because the headlines said this is the hardest core place to go when you're a prisoner in the state of New York. Son of Sam was sent there. Some of you remember that name. The man who assassinated John Lennon was sent there. Other notorious people, Mafioso Associates are found there. Gang members are there. It's a place where there's a lot of violence. It's a terrible place. My research revealed that 13 different prisons are on this island. It's not just one Rikers Island prison. And the reason officials in New York State want to get Manafort extradited is so that he can be tried in a court of law by the state of New York. The President's potential pardon of him will not be able to extend to any verdict that is rendered against him that finds him guilty of breaking the law in the state of New York. Our God has pardoned us, and there's no place in the universe, any other court, Can be convened by the devil who accuses us day and night to accuse us of our sin. Why? Because our God is faithful. He will cleanse us and has cleansed us, if we know Christ, of all unrighteousness, not because of anything which we have done, but because of what God has done. Allow me one illustration. I'm tempted to give many from Scripture. The one which comes to mind immediately is that of the Apostle Peter. Do you remember Peter? Do you remember the conversation that Jesus had with Simon Peter just a few hours before Jesus was arrested and just a few more hours before he was crucified on the Roman cross? Do you remember that? And if you do, you remember what Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has gained permission... To sift you like wheat. From whom would he have had to gain permission? Pilate? Caesar? Caiaphas? Annas? No. He had to get it from God Himself. God had to permit it. And look what Jesus goes on to say. Simon, Simon. Satan has gained permission to sift you like wheat. I have prayed for you, Simon Peter. And I'm saying when you return... From your sin, your failure, strengthen the brothers. And you know how Peter protested, right? He said, all these other guys, they may turn tail and run, but you can count on me, Jesus. But Peter was right with the bunch, wasn't he, when the time came. Just a few hours later. He was sincere when he said what he said, but he didn't depend on what the Lord said. He listened not to the Lord. Himself. And it was bad news. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus pardon the sin of Simon Peter? Did Jesus take the denial of Himself and turn it into something good in the life of Simon Peter? Let me be more personal. Did Jesus take the denial of Peter of himself and turn it into something good for you today? Why, yes. Because, in fact, what Jesus had predicted came true. Remember, what Jesus promises comes true. What did He promised Him? When you return. He knew that Peter would return. And He knew that Peter would be used to strengthen the brothers. He knew that Jesus... Jesus knew that Peter would become the preacher of arguably the greatest sermon next to Jesus' teaching ever preached. The sermon at Pentecost when 3,000 people were saved in one fell swoop. He knew that. Simon Peter was not put on probation. He was not told to stand in the corner. Now understand... As it was true in the case of David. I was reading this morning about David in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 15. And in that book, it talks about how David was a man who followed the Lord with a whole heart, except in one matter just one matter. And how awful that matter was. The scripture says that David had Uriah, his close associate, struck down to cover up David's own sin of stealing the wife of that man Uriah. In that one matter he sinned, when he was confronted by Nathan, the prophet of God, about his sin, and David had tried to cover it up. He'd done everything within his power not to be exposed, but the Bible says in the book of Numbers, be sure your sin will find you out. We might as well come clean with God and... Go forward and accept His forgiveness, not nonchalantly, not to treat sin lightly. Because when David writes his penitential psalm, we find in the 51st psalm, he says this, against you and you only have I sinned. When you and I finally understand how great the mercy of God is, how great His faithfulness is, what He has done for us, when we see God, when we grow in our knowledge of Him, then we will not take sin lightly. As David says in one of his psalms, he says, My sin troubles me. That is indicative of a person who understands who God is in His faithfulness and His mercy. And who grieves in his or her own heart when she or he, in fact, sins. So, what Nathan said on behalf of God to David when David said, I have sinned against the Lord. That's all he said. I have sinned against the Lord. Do you know what the prophet said? The Lord has forgiven you. The Lord has forgiven you. However, there are consequences to our actions that last the rest of our lives in this world. Not in eternity, but in this world. And David paid a high price, didn't he? But the good news is that he was pardoned. Of his sin. And what a relief that was to him. Have you ever been pardoned of your sin before? Have you ever felt the relief that comes when you remember what God promises because He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins when you confess your sin? Then He has wiped the slate clean. I've been reading a book which was given to me by some friends in the church, tremendous book. And it has some of the writings of the great British preacher Charles Spurgeon. And I'm going to read a little bit, just a small excerpt from Spurgeon's sermon. And he says this In heaven, says a brother, all those who know Jesus are accepted, but here we are in a state of probation. He's quoting someone he has heard say this. And then he goes on to say, listen carefully, did you read that in the Bible? For I never did. A believer is in no state of probation. If you think you're still in probation, you may not be saved. And if you are saved, you may be ignorant of the truth of God's Word. Read the Bible. Read the whole Bible. Don't depend on someone like me to teach for about 40 minutes a week, and you get what you get, and hopefully, it's truth that you receive. But read the Bible. Luxuriate in the truth of who God is. He is great in His faithfulness. His mercies are new. How frequently? Every morning. He goes on to say The person who knows Christ has passed from death into life and shall never come into condemnation. We are already accepted in the beloved, Ephesians 1 6. And that acceptance is given in a way that can never be reversed. The Redeemer brought us up out of the horrible pit of depravity, and He has set our feet on the rock of salvation, and there He has established our paths. Therefore, should we not, as the accepted of the Lord, do His will on earth as it is in heaven? God is faithful. To pardon us. Let's move on. To a second thing we see about the God who relates to us as His children. He protects us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3 says this. God is faithful. Sound familiar? God is faithful. He strengthens and protects us against the evil one. Or from the evil one. Who is the evil one? Satan. So God protects us from the devil. The Bible says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Remember when Paul was writing his last letter? He was in prison for the second time in Rome. He's writing to his son in the faith, eager to see him, urging him to come quickly to where he is. Timothy's in Ephesus, Paul's in Rome, come quickly. He knew his time was short. He wanted to see. He's going to heaven. He knows he's going to see Timothy in heaven. But his humanness is exuded in these words when he says, come. But in that closing part of the book of 2 Timothy, we hear him say these words, When I stood in court, everyone had deserted me. That would be lonely, wouldn't it? In the court of Nero, the infamous, the insidious Nero emperor of Rome. He was alone. But then he caught himself. In the next line he writes, But the Lord had not deserted me. The Lord was with me. And He delivered me from the lion's mouth. Now, we know what the Bible says about the devil, among other things. He is like a roaring lion. Maybe David was, I mean, excuse me, Paul was thinking about the fact that his fate could be the Colosseum where he'd be thrown to the lions because that was going on. But probably he was thinking about the devil. The devil is a bully, and he loves to accuse us, and he loves to intimidate us. But we don't belong to the devil anymore. We are people who belong to the one true God who is faithful and whose faithfulness is great to us. Also, He protects us from sin. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, many of you know this as well. The scripture says that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. There it is again. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Isn't that good? So what that says is, when I'm tempted to sin, I don't have to sin. I like what Luther said about the difference between temptation and sin. Temptation is like... The birds flying over your head. You can't keep them from flying over your head, but you can prevent them from building a nest in your hair. Right? When you start letting temptation build a nest in your hair, so to speak, that breaches over into sin. So we don't have to sin. Why? The Lord gives us a way out. Now let me do a bit of interpreting here as well. And what I want to mention at this point is that the word... Translated temptation is a word which in other contexts in our Bible is translated by the word trial. It's the same word in the original language. The context determines whether the interpreter who is translating translates it as temptation or trial. So in effect, every temptation is a trial as to whether we're going to trust God. And every trial is a temptation of whether we're going to trust God. So, let me give you one of the ways of escape that worked in the case, in Lamentations, in the life of this great prophet. In the book of James, the Bible says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be mature, lacking in nothing. So, here's a way of escape. Jeremiah employed it. He began to think on God. He began consequently to rejoice in the Lord in the midst of horrible circumstances. And that is a way of escape. I cannot tell you how many times in my own life when I have found myself at rock bottom emotionally and then I began to say, wait a minute, doesn't the Scripture say rejoice in the Lord always? Again, I will say rejoice. Yes, it does. Doesn't the Bible say, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips which confess His name? Yes, it does. So, what am I to do? Doesn't the Bible say in the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, in every thing give thanks, rejoice evermore? Yes, it does. So, come on, Mike, why aren't you obeying me? This is a way out. This is your way of escape. Begin to praise the Lord. And amazingly, the peace which passes all understanding guards my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. That's true for you as well, if you know the Lord. So, God protects us. Daniel's three friends, remember? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar had declared? There had been this huge idol Representing him. And whenever his band began began to play a certain tune, everybody within earshot was to bow down and worship the idol. In effect, worship Nebuchadnezzar. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel too. They wouldn't do it. Daniel was somewhere else. The three of them were in public when the horns played, and they just stood there. Solemnly, quietly stood there. And... Nebuchadnezzar saw it. It infuriated him. He ordered that his attendants would take these men, heat up the fiery furnace seven times hotter harder, harder than normal, and throw these boys into the fire. And so, here go these men, carrying these men to the place of death in a fiery furnace. And the heat was so high that those men disintegrated. But somehow or another, these three guys, teenagers probably, or young adults at least, at the most, were in the fiery furnace. And then Nebuchadnezzar peers in there and he says, hey, those guys are still alive. And I see four in there. There's an additional person. And he looks like the Son of God. Guess who it was? It was Jesus, I think, in a pre-incarnate, what theologians call a Christophany, before He became one of us. He was with them in the fiery furnace. The Lord protects us when we're in the fiery furnace. He didn't take them out of the fiery furnace immediately. The Bible says in the book of Psalms, I believe it's 34, I know it's the 19th verse, it says this, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him or her out of them all. Praise God. Let's look at the third area in which God's great faithfulness Is seen in the way he relates to us as his children. He partners with us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 says this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 God, who has called you into fellowship with Christ Jesus our Lord, is faithful. Do you know what the word fellowship really means in its basic meaning? If we were going to Luke chapter 5, what we would discover in Luke chapter 5 is that Luke describes the relationship which Peter and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, had with one another. They were in a fellowship of fishing. Fellowship means partnership. We have been called by God, into a partnership, fellowship, with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord. Let that sink in for a moment. We are called to walk with the Lord in partnership. Fellowship is partnership. It's so important to have fellowship, isn't it? To be together with other believers. But We fall short of what genuine fellowship is if there's not some mission in mind. How we're going to serve the Lord. How we're going to be means of carrying forward the Gospel. The Apostle Paul says to the Philippians, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers, I always pray with you. Now catch this, because of your partnership with me in the Gospel. Would you like to venture a guess as to what the word partnership is? It's the word koinonia, the common word for fellowship, partnership. And what was the partnership circling the gospel, preaching and sharing the gospel? So we are in a partnership with the Lord Jesus Christ. We have fellowship. It's sweet, isn't it, to have time alone with the Lord? He invites us to that every day. It's imperative. That we accept the invitation. He says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, have fellowship with him, and he or she with me. The Apostle Paul talks about the partnership that he and Apollos and Peter had with God in the founding of and the development of the church at Corinth. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, and then he said, but God gave the growth. But they were partners with him. Look, this is our opportunity too. We can partner with the Lord. This is why you are being encouraged to ask God, give you one person. Ask God, give me one person, Lord in whom I can invest, whom you could use me to introduce to the Lord Jesus Christ. Partnership with the Lord. Here's the fourth way in which the great faithfulness of God is seen in the way He relates to us. He preserves us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 say this, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete until the day of Christ Jesus. Faithful is He who calls you, and He will bring it to pass. Once again, to underscore that, He preserves us by His faithfulness. It's His plan that once you and I come to know Jesus, that we progress. And in the book of Philippians, he says, being confident of this, Paul does to the Philippians, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The Lord preserves us, and at the same time, He moves us more and more in the direction of being like Jesus Christ Himself. How does He do that? By His Spirit He does it. We are sanctified according to 1 Peter chapter 1. By the Holy Spirit. And what tool does the Holy Spirit use? He uses the Word of God which He has inspired. When Jesus is praying to the Father before His death the next day, Jesus says, Sanctify them by Your truth. Your Word is truth. There are two words in the New Testament which are translated by our English term Word. One is "ramah," which means a personal, customized word from the Bible for you and me. And when you claim promises for you, that's a rhema word. The word which Jesus uses in John seventeen seventeen, where He says, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth, is the word logos. Logos is the word used for everything from Genesis 1, 1 to Revelation 22, 21. This is all God's Word. Whether you and I ever pick it up and read it, It still remains God's Word. And God uses the whole counsel of God to preserve us and to move us into a deeper walk with the Lord. Are you getting a sense this morning about the immense greatness of the faithfulness of God? How encouraging it is, isn't it? But think about this. These are life-changing truths. As we finish, we'll take a little more time to look at the greatness of God's faithfulness as it is seen in the way His children relate to one another. We are the recipients of the greatness of God's faithfulness. He has pardoned us. He has protected us. He has partnered with us. He has preserved us and He will continue to do those things in our lives. But He wants us to be reflective of that. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 say this, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. Do you sense that you are loved today by God based upon what we've looked at in Scripture? Do you have that sense? Are you deepening in your appreciation of the love of God for you? Well, what are we to do as a result? We're to be imitators of God. In Galatians five twenty two and 23 catalog the various aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, there's one in there that relates to our message today. At least it's the word faithfulness. The Holy Spirit is faithful because He's God. God the Father is faithful, obviously. He is God. Jesus is faithful. So we have the Spirit of God indwelling us, do we not? Who sanctifies us? The Holy Spirit. Who indwells us? The Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit want to do? He wants to fill us. That means He wants to control our lives. And when He does, we see in our lives love, peace, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. And that faithfulness expresses itself through us. It's the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit. It's really God who does it through us. It's His work. Remembering what I mentioned earlier, where Paul says, I will not presume to speak about anything except what God has done through me. This is the miracle of the Christian life. God lives in us by his Spirit. Jesus' life gets out of us into other people's lives. Look at these four things. They're predictable based on what we've seen. What will we do when when we pardon one another? Do you have a trouble forgiving others? This is what the Bible says. Ephesians 4.32 The Bible says, Be kind and compassionate toward one another, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Look at Luke 6. Listen to what? Listen carefully. These are just the words of God. No comment. Luke 6.36-38 The Scripture says, Be merciful. These are the words of Jesus. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. For with the measure you give, it will be given to you. Now, that's a great passage you've heard preachers preach on that last about giving money. And it applies to that. But the context is not about giving money. It works for money. But it's in the context of giving what? What? Mercy, pardon, forgiveness. We live in a world that's a fallen world. We as believers, even though Christ lives in us many times, we still offend other people. And God wants us to forgive people who have offended us. 1 Peter 4.8 says this. It says that love covers a multitude of sins. Therefore... Peter says, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, love one another deeply. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ deeply? It covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't turn its head away and say, oh, it's okay. Do whatever you want to, winking at somebody when they're in sin. It's okay. No. Hopefully that's been established today already. But people who sin are battered and beaten by their sin. And so we who our spiritual, Galatians 6.1, says this. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. We are in the restoration business here in the church to restore our brothers and sisters who have been caught, really, trapped is the word, in the sin. And we're to go to them humbly but courageously and confront them with the truth of God's Word about behavior that they exhibit, attitudes which they display in hopes that they would be restored. Romans 5 5 says, The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. We have Holy Spirit living in us, Holy Spirit of God, and He can empower us to forgive each other. Here's the next one. Also, the way we relate to each other, when we protect one another. Here are a couple of ways. There are many that we can protect one another. Simply put, pray for one another. That's what James five sixteen. To pray. For pray the protection. Jesus prays for our protection. He says, Protect the I'm talking about us from the evil one. We can pray that for each other. That's protective, isn't it? And that's what we're to do. He prays that in John 17. Then Hebrews 3.13 says, Encourage one another today as long as it is called today so that your heart may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need encouragement every day. And we can protect each other in our homes. If you live in a home where you're married and both partners are married, look, married man, married woman, encourage your spouse every day. Encourage him or her with the Word of God. Encourage him, encourage her with the truth. Here's the third way. And remember, we're reflecting God's faithfulness when we do this. When we as the children of God partner with one another. Hebrews ten twenty three and 24 talks about, Let us not give up meeting as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Ecclesiastes 4.10 says, Pity the man who falls and has no one to pick him up. If one man falls, his friend will pick him up. We need friendship in the body of Christ. When we're partnering to each other, with each other, we have accountability, don't we? We need to be in more than a large group like this. We need to be in a small group the recipe for disaster in anybody's life and it happened to king david he was isolated he was alone at the time of year when kings normally went to war he hung back it was then when he fell into sin being alone is not a good thing second timothy 2:22 says this it says flee the youthful desires of the lustful desires of youth and pursue righteousness faith, love, and peace along with those who call upon the Lord out of a pure heart. Find some people who love the Lord and are pursuing the Lord. Pursuing God. And get on board with them and together pursue the Lord. And the last thing, when we are committed to preserve one another John 1719 this is what the word of the Lord says John 17:19 Jesus says this it's pretty remarkable that he would say, say this to his prayer in his prayer to the father he says for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth now what's he saying that little word also is important how was Jesus sanctified? the same way you and I are in the truth of God's Word. He's just said sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth, right? Sanctify them in the truth. For their sakes, I sanctify myself. Do you know, it's our responsibility if we're like Christ, and it's no, there's nothing quite like it, that we will set ourselves apart just like Jesus did. We'll be men and women of the Word so that we can be tools in God's hands not to hammer people with the Word of God, but to have encouragement from God's Word to help them to grow. Isn't that exciting? Well, let me close with a verse of Scripture. Let's read it aloud together. Good place to stop. Second 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Praise the Lord, right? That He is great in His faithfulness to us.